Welcome everyone to my podcast series, The Holistic Nature of Us. I invite you to take a journey with me into a better understanding of the concepts behind our holistic nature and how that ties us directly to the natural world around us. My intention is to be your guide for this half hour as we begin seeing our world with fresh eyes, gaining more understanding and learning how we can connect the dots in practical ways that we are nature and nature's in us. I feature a broad range of guests deeply concerned about the environmental issues of our time and more, authors and educators, practitioners and others whose passion for this earth and for all species help us create sustainable bridges of understanding. These folks are innovators, action-oriented, creating solutions in a variety of ways that honor us and the planet's holistic nature. I'm honored to share their stories, their projects, and their passion with all of you. So thank you again for joining us today for another engaging interview. I'm delighted to have and welcome back Gail Reynolds. She's a plant scientist and now the coordinator for the University of Connecticut's composting program through the College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Scientists. And today our topic's going to be all about composting. So welcome, Gail. Thank you. It's great to be here again. All right. So let's dig right in, pardon the pun, uh, into composting. Uh-huh. <laughs> so tell us about your interest in composting and give us a general understanding of the composting world. Well, um, you know, I've always tried to do backyard composting, not with much diligence, but also tried to do it. But in 2014, I recently, you know, I'd been in my job as the Middlesex County Master Gardener Coordinator uh, for about a year, and um, the Yukon Master Composter Program, which is held only in one site each fall, was going to be in Haddam where the extension office is, and I figured, well, they're going to expect me to be there to open and close the building each night, so I might as well take the program. And it was something where I really enjoyed it because, again, um, the education um, provided is based on science, and um, I've just, um, you know, always... Uh, volunteered and learned more, and um, last year I became the state coordinator for the Yukon Master, Master Composter Program. So, um, and what people really need, the first thing I'll say about composting is really all composting is, is managed decomposition, because um, things break down, and if we want, or um, if we want to break them down. Um, a little quicker, we can manage it. And that's what composting is. And there are different ways to do it. They're, you know, large scale, small scale, anaerobic, aerobic, um, and then worms, which, you know, eventually I'd like to talk about today. Oh, that's great. That's a great description. Definition and description, managed decomposition. And, of course, when we put table scraps out or we mow our lawn or we rake our leaves, we'd like things to break down a little bit faster, correct? Right. Uh, so we have different uh, ways of doing that. I, I keep hearing through the Master Gardener program the lasagna method. Right, um, right. Because right. you really need to layer things. 
a lot of people have given a lot of thought to composting, and this includes many academics. And there are even, um, you can find, on the Internet, you can find what are called compost calculators because you have to have a combination of grounds, like, you know, dead leaves and wood chips and things, and greens, which are greener things like, say, fresh grass clippings, um, food scraps. You have to have, um, you know, certain um, combinations and ratios of browns and greens, and then layer them. And then um, if you want to really have um, eat, help your, um, your composting and kill all the weed seeds and things, you need to get it hot enough and just cover it which I might add my husband refuses to do. So, um, we why have, is that? Why is that? Oh, I don't know. Just because. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, thought he, I thought maybe there was some other reason for it. No, no, he just doesn't want to do that. So my personal, um, my outdoor composting does not get hot enough to kill the weed seed. So I have to be careful there because sometimes, you know, you want to add compost to your soil because what compost can do your soil is in addition to adding some nutrients it can also add better structure to your soil for example if you have a real clay soil where water can't penetrate if you mix compost in you'll have more pockets for that water to stay and to penetrate and make it more available to plant roots and similarly if you have a very uh well-drained soil, like a very sandy soil, water goes right through. And if you add compost to that, the water will stay a little longer because it adds more structure. Right. And that doesn't necessarily take a long time, does it? No. No. So adding these materials in the spring and the fall certainly keeps our soil in a better balance, especially, yeah. I know some areas around here are more clay. When you get down to the shore in Connecticut, you have more sand. So compost certainly enhances gardens in those two areas. Right. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different, um, because where you have clay, you tend to have clay soils where there was once like a river bottom where clay settles or behind a dam. And when you have sandy soil that sort of goes along with the clay soils because as water flows it moves sand and especially when Connecticut was glaciated you had a lot of this activity you had huge glacial lakes where there's no lake today you had a lot of um, water as the ice age ended you had a lot of water running under the sand and you had a lot of um, like sand flowing and what's called ice contact stratified drift that are now, um, you know, where people dig sand for, uh, you know, for road use and, and other uses. So there's a lot of that around. The sand's not just at the shore. And the, the silt, which becomes clay, really clay, isn't just, you know, at existing lakes because we have a history here. So, and then you have other places where you just have kind of, glacial till in your soil and it's probably it's usually not that rich because it's generally not always but generally weathered from um, metamorphic rock which isn't as rich um, a source of minerals and things as sedimentary rock like in the Connecticut River Valley you have really great farmland because it's 
sedimentary. It's um, kind of sandstone called arcos. It's very rich in iron and other nutrients. Um, and if you look at, like, um, in the past, like back when I was in grad school and things weren't computerized, you'd have to dig a soil pit. And that's how uh, soils were classified. But now all that stuff has been, you can access it in geographic information systems. And even there's an app called, I think it's called Soil Web, where it uses um, it uses the GPS in your phone, and it'll, you'll just put it on, and it'll say, okay, you're standing here, and this is your soil type. It's amazing. Oh, that is amazing. I've never heard That's, of that one. And is, have you tested it? Is it accurate? Um, I assume it's accurate because it's it's you it's um, promoted by like the National Resource Conservation Service. I don't question them. Okay. Really, they're the old Soil Conservation Service. Okay. So, um, and you can even use geographic information systems layers, which people who um, are professionals in that will, you know, they get all this electronically and they extract different things. And you can get a layer that says good agricultural soils, like in your town or in your state, based on, um, you know, soil consistency and, what, you know, how water it is and how, you know, how much the water um, is in it. And that's how a lot of, like, you can delineate wetlands, um, you know, on the ground, which ultimately has to be done, but you get a good head start by looking at these layers, which denote what wetland soils are. Hmm, how interesting. Yes. And in the transcript, we'll make sure we have the uh, link to this app. Right. It's very interesting. Sure, sure. Yeah, I would be pleased to do that. Okay, so let's get into the heart of worms, since right. that's one of your passions. Yeah, and I, I just, um, every year the Master Composter uh, program has Worm Day, usually in October, um, where a whole day is set aside to celebrate composting worms and educate people about bad worms, because there are um, bad worms around, because worms are not native to Connecticut, um, earthworms, um, because they were all um, eliminated in the last ice age here. And worms have been here, uh, you know, especially the colonists brought worms. So we have a lot of European, um, Eurasian earthworms, like, you know, night crawlers and things. But there are also Asian uh, worms that are very destructive. And it's just been um, publicized now. There's a professor at the University of Vermont, Joseph Goris, who comes to Worm Day every year. And he's been studying these invasive worms for many years, but he has trouble getting funding because worms just aren't that sexy, I guess. People <laughs> don't want to study these. But the Asian worms, some people call them Alabama jumpers or crazy snake worms. They're Because um, they move their um, locomotion. It sort of resembles a snake's locomotion. And they came here pretty much in the nursery trade. Um, and they are very destructive in the, like, in, in a, um, a forest setting. What they do is they homogenize the forest floor, like the layers of uh, leaf litter and things that many of our um, forest species, not just trees, but also understory uh, species, they expect them to be in a certain 
way so that their seeds can germinate. But these worms come through and they just eat everything. And they homogenize the forest floor and it really uh, has an adverse impact on um, regeneration of, of plant species in forests. That, that's really interesting because, you know, we all grow up with worms in the soil, right? So Absolutely. worms have been here for a while. Uh, we, we take them for granted. I don't think we delineate them into um, the fact that they're not native. Uh, I've right. heard of a couple right. of Eurasian or Asian ones that are destructive. I don't know much about right. them. But this gives us education that they're homogenizing the soil, which is not good in the long run for our forests. Do you do we see damage in our forests here in Connecticut right now? Oh, oh, yes. oh yes, they're everywhere. Um, and finally, there are some people studying this. Um, you know, Joseph Gores does study it on the side, but there are other people studying. In fact, um, the Asian worms have been. There are laws forbidding them in New York State and in Wisconsin because they've done so much damage. They can even damage your lawn because. Uh, we get at my office we get calls from people well you know my lawn there's this little depression and it's probably these worms that are going through and like just eating the roots of their grass and so it sinks down and uh, yeah they're, they're, they don't have any benefits then you can't even go you can't even use them for fishing because one of my master gardeners is a big um, you know fisherman who you know, works with Cloud Unlimited and everything, and he says he tried. He's tried to put them on his hook, and they explode. So you can't <laughs> because of the hydrostatic pressure. So you can't you can't even use them for fishing. How about that? No, I, I, I have never heard that either. This is very very interesting. Okay, so now we're seeing these worms having damage. So let's just say backyard composter. Uh, I don't know, sees a couple of different worms. How would you help them identify them? Okay, um, the um, worm, the, the Asian worms tend to have, there's a um, part of the worm that is used for reproduction. It's called the clitellum. And that's usually like in the Asian worms, it's like what you would call, sort of deem the worm's neck area. And when they're reproductively active, they... Um, the clitellum extends all the way around the worm. In other worms, it doesn't extend all the way around, but in the Asian worms, it's and it it's extends all the way around, and it's also it turns white. And that's probably the the, the best way. There are other like more intricate ways to tell them apart. But, but but that's easy for uh, the backyard yeah. gardener who's not a scientist to yeah. uh, to understand what they've got there. So and when because composting with worms, um, the, the worms that are used for that are called red wigglers. Um, Einz, the genus is I believe it's Einstedia or something. I'll I'll send that to you. Um, but there are many people on the internet who are unscrupulous, surprise, surprise, and they will sell you, you ought, want to order red wiggler, wigglers uh, for your indoor worm composting, yet they'll send you the bad, the Asian worms, because they just want to make a buck. So you have to be really careful. And we recommend that you ask for composting worms uh, by their scientific names, 
um, so that people just can't give you any words. Oh, but interesting. That, that's a good point. We say that all the time in Master Gardener classes yes. and lectures, at least that I do. Yes. Always check your botanical name that's for exactly plants. That's exactly right. Yeah, because people can have different common names. They can have the same common name for different plants. So if you use the scientific name, you have a better chance of knowing exactly like which plant you're you're speaking of or which worm you're trying to obtain. So when you compost with worms, vermicomposting, you really um, what what the worms do is they eat your um, vegetable material, and you also need to provide bedding for them, which is usually newspaper or um, like that coir, that coconut husk brick coir, um, that stuff. And they, they, they do the thing, they eat the things you put in there, and they poop it out. And the poop, the worm poop, is the compost. Um, and they even, they eat the newspaper, they eat the coir too, but they love, um, their favorite things, they love melon, they love banana peels. Um, they, you know, I've tried to get them to eat some other things. They'll eat your tea bags. Um, you know, they'll, that's not their favorite, um, Melons are their favorite, but they do that. They do it very quietly, and if you do it correctly, you won't have any odors. You won't have insects. Um, you can leave it like under your sink in a bin. All you really need is like a Rubbermaid tub with some holes drilled in it, so they get some air, and like something underneath it, like a baking sheet or one of those um, foil um, baking pans. Just so, because they need water, you need to make sure when you put, um, you know, the newspaper in and stuff that it, it has to be moist. And um, they, they're really quiet. I, I had them for, um, geez, four years, but then I broke my wrist a half ago. My husband wanted to take care of them, so they, they uh, died off. But I have, I have um, new, some new bins. I keep them at work now, but I bring them home when I separate out the compost as long as you wear plastic gloves it's not going to hurt you and um, I put it in my vegetable garden and it, it works wonderfully and um, I give um, talks on vermicomposting because it's really easy and you know who doesn't want to see this cute little red worm wriggling around in your hand they make great pets I have to walk my dogs I don't have to walk my worms <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Let's be practical, right? <laughs> yeah, and when you get used to like looking through your worms, when they do really well, you can even split them out and give them to your other friends who um, you know want to start vermicomposting. Vermicomposting. They, they, um, you can even see their cocoons. You can identify what they are because when the worms lay their eggs, they're in a cocoon. That's what they're called, and then they hatch into new worms. So, excuse me. Um, so that's you know, they're um, they don't require much much um, you know TLC at all. That's interesting because again, it's a practical thing we can do at home, especially oh. if people live in smaller spaces, apartments, right. condos, that kind of thing. They could actually put something under their sink and 
keep nourishing their potted plants or right. you know maybe they do container gardening on their deck or something exactly. a lot of people do that their grow bags it's really easy to grow you know just about any vegetable in a grow bag um, and you can use this for compost you can when you water it when you like make sure the worms are moist the water comes through you can catch it in the bottom and whatever you have under your worm bin and that can be used as compost tea for your house plants or even your outdoor plants you know whatever you have on your deck and you know you're not your um your your vegetable scraps are your kitchen scraps are being decomposed um so you're doing a good thing they're not going to a landfill i hope people aren't still dumping kitchen scraps in their trash but i know well, they are in apartment complexes because there's no other way to, 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 to place the material. And many of your apartment and condo complexes obviously don't want you to put table scraps out to attract skunks and raccoons. So, again, these are ideas that we can use in those situations if we don't have, you know, our own private homes to, to do composting. Right, right. You know, just a little bit doing your thing. So, and as long as you uh, – I've had problems with – if I don't keep the bedding, you know, the newspaper, the shredded paper, or um, the coconut fiber, if I don't keep enough of that, if they eat it all, that's when you can get fruit flies or I've had drain flies. But as long as you keep, keep um, you know, a good layer of that and put the food underneath it, you don't have problems with, with those. With the, uh, okay, that that's good because I can see those questions coming up. Oh, guess what? I tried everything you said and I got fruit flies. Right, right. So because I I um, recently took in some orphan worms, there, the person who had them just couldn't take them in, and they were they had so many fruit flies in them. But um, little by little, I got rid of them, and now they're they're fine. And and if people do have fruit flies, and you really want an immediate trap, what you do is just get some kind of container. Put some holes in the top. Get some red, the apple cider vinegar, and um, put in a few um, dots of uh, dishwashing detergent. And the the uh, fruit flies will go in there, and they can't because of the the uh, the dish detergent makes it so this they get they land on the surface and they can't leave. So they'll get rid of your fruit fruit flies. Oh, and. That's good. Thank you for that. Um, I always appreciate, you know, the pro and the con and what to do. So I think that's very, very helpful. Making sure you have enough bedding for them, um, you won't look the issues go away. So another question I have is, like right now we're in February. Can people here in New England go and get some worms and start it outside now? No, you can't. Worms aren't really to be used outside because they can't survive the winters here. Um. Because even the the Asian worms, the worms can't survive the winters here, but their cocoons can. But the composting worms should be used indoors. But yeah, you can get them. You can get them in the winter. Um, the best place is the the worm ladies in they're in Rhode Island. They are reputable. Oh, um, thank sure you. That's you another can, great resource. Yeah. You can get worms. You know, in the summer, you can't put your worm compost bin outside, although you don't want it in the hot sun because worms won't like that. They don't like it too, too hot. But if you um, if you just release them, you know, into your 
compost pile outside, that they, they won't survive. Um, you know, what does the composting outside are bacteria and little um, and micro invertebrate, invertebrates, you know, little, little sow, sow bugs, you know, the little roly polies and millipedes and centipedes and fun, fungi. Because you can put food into your, your worm bin and then you can open your worm bin like a day later and it can be just overrun with like fungus. But that's okay because that's helping to break down whatever it is you put in there and it makes it easier for the worms to, to you know, to, to ingest it and digest it. Okay. All right, so we know there's a possibility of fruit flies. We know there's a possibility of fungus, you, and you gave us ways to, you know, work with both, and that the yeah. fungus really is okay, because I can see that being another question. Yeah, if you have an odor, that's the other thing, is your stuff, as long as they have enough air, they should be, you should not have odors. If you, if you um, put in, if in your worm bin, if you put in uh, too much food, and your worms can't eat it fast enough, you can have an odor then. So uh, what we say, the advice is, like, don't don't put in so much food. Just put in what your worms can handle. So, Gail, I have another question, oh. too. You've mentioned a couple things that the worms like, especially melons. Yeah. But if you don't typically buy that and you just have table scraps, you put the table scraps on the bottom, layer it with newspapers, and, and then put your worms on top. Is that correct? You put you put everything under the newspaper. Everything under the newspaper. Worms yeah. and all. Worms, yeah. food oh, and all. Oh, they'll eat other things. I mean, they'll eat, you know, they like lettuce and they like, they'll eat zucchini. And like I mentioned, they'll eat your tea bags. Mm-hmm. So... If, if you get a tea bag that is actual mesh and not just like uh, paper, you're going to have to cut that open because they can't get into the mesh. They'll eat coffee grounds. They will, um, you know, they'll eat, um, you have to cut them up but like tomatoes and squash and pumpkins and, you know, whatever you might have. Like, but um, you shouldn't. Put it like if you put salad materials and if you had put like oil dressing on them, that's not good because the oil um, they don't like the oils. Okay, yeah. not good. And we do tend to have our salads with dressings on it, so that's something to be mindful yeah. of. I've tried to like get myself to not put dressing on my salad just because I figure sometimes you can't, but I try to make it interesting enough. That I can, but that's a lot to ask of people. So you have to be careful with that. And they also, no, like no meat, no meat, right? No milk. You know, so you can't like dump that extra yogurt in there. That's not good. Okay. But uh, things like you know what you can um, put in there, like you can uh, crack up eggshells. You just can't put in eggshells. You have to like sort of cr- crunch them up. Uh huh. They'll, they'll do those. Um, outdoor composting, which is not with worms necessarily, but you can compost dog hair. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't. Yeah. So dog hair can be added to your yeah. composting pile. If you um, have uh, like dryer lint, if it's from non-synthetic uh, fabrics, that can be composted outside. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cotton, um, 
cottons, linens. That right. A hundred percent. Pure may not be the right word, but a hundred percent like cotton fabrics yeah. are not uh, mixed with nylons like, and rayons and that yeah. kind of thing. Spandex, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Gail, do you have any um, any other summary that you'd like to do, like summary of the three basic tips for composting? Um, well, the summary is if you have questions about composting, about about equipment you need, about what you need to do, like call your local extension center master gardener office. They'd be really happy to help you. Um, another thing is like don't you don't have to spend a lot of money on a composter, whether it's for worms or for outdoors. You don't need a fancy like Turner thing. And if you want one of those, go go to um go to a, like do some tag sales because you'll be bound to find an expensive composter that somebody purchased and then just lost interest in and they're trying to get rid of it for you know a lot a lot less than you pay online or in a store. So that's another. Um, Another great tip. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Um, you know, I also would recommend, like, taking uh, a trip to see, like, a big, like, um, there are, in, like, more industrial composters in Connecticut who have, who, you know, let people uh, come and look and see what they can do. Um, up in, uh, like, Freund's, the people who make the poo pots, that's how they compost their um, their cow manure. Right near them is another one, Laurel Brook Farms, where they have an industrial. They have huge machines, but they can compost. They compost food from local, um, I think, local schools, and it's amazing. They, and their compost gets so hot that they can actually. They take like cow carcasses and other carcasses, and they can actually uh, decompose those in their composting. There's another one that we've been to in Ellington. Um, the town of Manchester has a big composting facility for for their residents. Um, at their they have a landfill. That's another one and during the week I think if you're in Manchester you can go take a look at it. But it's amazing to see the machines do their things. There's another one in Ellington. I forget the name of that. But if you can, um, you know, the the um, there are um, you know composting companies who, in order to make this cost effective, have to um, you know use like they have um, uh, methods that have been studied and put into practice. So I'd highly recommend that to people if they have an opportunity to go to one of those farm composting of their manure and of their um, you know crops left over. Although don't if if you um, have say you have your you know your outdoor vegetable garden and your tomatoes develop say um, you know a fungal leaf spot or something don't compost those don't compost invasive plants because you'll be um, if your compost doesn't get hot enough to kill the seeds uh, forget it you're gonna be a, an invasive plant nursery hmm. I know there are a lot of things that I said. <laughs> Cool. Well, that's really great. Um, do you have contact information you want to leave us with? Um, if you go to um, uh, ladybug.yukon.edu, there will be uh, a menu item there for the Yukon Master Gardener, uh, not Master Gardener, Master Composter Program. 
uh, part rather. And you can see, you know, there there are fact sheets. There are, um, you know, everything you want to know about composting there. That's great. And for those listeners who are out of state, they should check with their. They certainly can use. UConn, uh, for right. sure, but they can also check their own universities. Yeah. In other places, University of Vermont has great information on composting. Cornell has great information on composting. Or, you know, whatever your land-grant university is, check them. They'll probably have information about composting. Wow. That's wonderful. Uh, you gave us so much great information. A- again, everything will be in the transcript for people to refer back to. Uh, So, Gail, thank you again for being a guest here at The Holistic Nature of Us. My pleasure. Well, I hope everyone feels um, as inspired as I do, and we certainly got a lot of practical advice today, which I'm very grateful for. So this is Judith Dreyer. I am the author of At the Garden's Gate book and blog. My book is available through my website, which is www.judithdreyer.com, as well as several distribution arms, such as Amazon, Nook, Goodreads, and more. I'd like to remind all of you again that the transcript will be available for each podcast. Please like and share them. Let's support each other and get the word out. And remember, now is the time for practical action and profound inner change so we value our world again. Enjoy your day.